Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, the weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called, God Has Brought Me Laughter, Sarah, the Mother of Nations. And it's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, June the 15th, 2008. At a strategic meeting of our church leaders, a friend asked an awkward but important question that caught some people off guard. The result was predictable. Nervous laughter, even though there was nothing remotely funny about the question she raised. Laughter, in fact, has many voices that reveal different things about us. Derision and scorn, for example, can explode in a sarcastic laughter that intends to humiliate us. The giggles of children, entirely unselfconscious, hearten us with their unfettered joy. Poking fun at our human frailty, our foibles, and the occasional faux pas is almost always a healthy thing. As for jokes, my family likes to say that we laugh three times. We laugh when we hear the joke, we laugh when it's explained to us, and then we laugh when we understand it. In the story from Genesis 18 this week, we encounter yet another type of laughter. It's the dismissive laughter of incredulity. The matriarch Sarah, Abraham's wife, laughed at God's improbable promise to her that she would bear a child and in so doing become the mother of nations, Genesis 17, 16. And then she lied in a ploy to deny her doubt. Standing at the entrance to their tent, Sarah eavesdropped on Abraham as he conversed with three travelers who had visited him. They bore a crazy message from God that about this time next year, Sarah, your wife, will bear a son. This was the second time that Abraham had received this promise. When he heard it the first time, we read that he fell face down, laughed, and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of ninety? For herself, Sarah responded in an identical manner when she heard the stupendous suggestion. We read in Genesis, So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I'm worn out and my master is old, will I now have this pleasure? The ecstasy of erotic pleasure? The joy of a newborn baby? Sarah laughed in disbelief. But God rebuked her for her doubt, at which point she then lied and denied. We read, Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But God said, yes, you did laugh. Sarah doubted and denied. She laughed and she lied. Because of the absurd disproportion between the divine promise and the human possibility. Her response was entirely human and not really surprising. From a human perspective, her disbelief was warranted, even appropriate. 
People don't procreate in old age. But her unbelief also evoked a rhetorical rebuke in the punchline of the story. We read in Genesis 18:14, "Is anything too difficult for the Lord?" When I was in seminary, my classmate Phil coined a wonderful term for that sort of religious faith that has a firm and unwavering belief in a tame and innocuous divinity. It's a faith that doesn't have any expectations that God will meddle in human affairs, that he will intercede in your life, providentially guide human history, care for a loved one, heal the hurts we suffer, or, God forbid, do the impossible. My, char- my friend characterized that sort of tepid faith as what he called functional deism. Functional deism never denies the existence or the reality of God, but it also never expects his decisive action in your personal affairs. Yahweh thus rebuked Sarah for her timid faith in a tiny God. God did not shame Sarah in any sort of punitive manner like we often do. Quite the contrary. We read, The Lord was gracious to Sarah as he said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he promised. In a delightful double entendre, they named their son Isaac, which in Hebrew means he laughs. Their son of laughter would always remind them of their own disbelief. He would also testify how God fulfilled his promises and acted in their personal history despite improbable and unbelievable circumstances. Whereas Sarah had brought her nervous laughter to God's promise, in the end the tables were turned. God has brought me laughter, she said, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Genesis 21, 1-7 Sarah's disbelief, doubt, laughter, lies, and denial convey not only an appropriate rebuke to our own tendency to do likewise, in a reminder of God's mighty power to act in the most hopeless of circumstances. Sarah also communicates a sense of consolation. We normally think of Abraham and Sarah as paragons of faith and virtue, and with good reason, given how the New Testament describes them as heroes in Romans chapter 4, Hebrews chapter 11, and 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 6. But Sarah demonstrates how God's drama of salvation is not a story of stellar saints far removed from our own experiences so that we could never hope to emulate them. Rather, it's a story of down and dirty sinners, messy characters portrayed with their own faults and failures. Acting out his own fears, Abraham lied about his wife, Sarah, 
Genesis 12, 13. Both he and Sarah scoffed at God's promise of progeny. Commenting on the untidy and unsavory nature of the biblical characters, in his book, Christ Plays in 10,000 Places, Eugene Peterson puts it this way. <clears throat> One of the remarkable characteristics of the biblical way of training us to understand history and our place in it is the absolute refusal to whitewash a single detail. The history in which our scriptures show that God is involved is every bit as messy as the history reported by our mass media in which God is rarely mentioned, apart from blasphemies. Sex and violence, rape and massacre, brutality and deceit do not seem to be congenial materials for use in developing a story of salvation, but there they are, spread out on the pages of our scriptures. It might not offend some of us so much if these flawed and reprobate people were held up as negative examples with lurid hellfire descriptions of the punishing consequences of living such bad lives. But the biblical story is not told quite that way. There are punishing consequences, of course, but the fact is that all these people, good and bad, faithful and flawed, are worked into the plot of salvation. God, it turns out, does not require good people in order to do good work. As one medieval saying has it, God draws straight lines with a crooked stick. He can and does work with us whatever the moral and spiritual condition in which he finds us. God, we realize, does some of his best work using the most unlikely people. Eugene Peterson. I take genuine comfort in knowing that my own doubts and denials, the lies I tell myself to rationalize my disbelief, and the times that I scoff at the likelihood of divine intervention in my puny affairs, are not only standard fare for normal human nature, they're also the raw material of God's salvation history. They might deserve a divine rebuke like Sarah received, but they don't constitute an ultimate obstacle to divine action in my own little story. God has brought me laughter, the story of Sarah. <clears throat> For books this week, I review Cormac McCarthy. The title of the book is The Road, New York Vintage Books, 2006, 287 pages. Cormac McCarthy won a Pulitzer Prize for this best-selling novel about a nameless father and son who roam a post-apocalyptic world, pushing a grocery cart that has a motorcycle mirror clamped to its handle. A tarp and a pistol are their only protection. They're traveling south toward the coast for warmth, filthy, ragged, and hopeless, although it's not at, all, not at all clear what they could possibly do once they get there. This seems like a journey with a destination, but no apparent purpose. 
we infer that there are some of the very few survivors of an unprecedented global catastrophe that has destroyed almost all of life of any kind. We only learn that the clocks stopped at 1.17, about which, I might add, there's great, great speculation whether there's any symbolic, knowledge, uh, symbolic importance. The only thing that moves is the ash that's blanketed the world and that blows in the wind, the cold rain and the dirty snow. This journey is one of death, darkness, and desolation. They're rightly paranoid of every other human being. Shriveled corpses, abandoned houses, and the remains of cannibalism are their daily lot. It's a colorless world where, according to the father in his clipped prose, the frailty of everything revealed at last. But it's still a world of deep love between the protective father and the innocent and apprehensive young son. As McCarthy puts it, each the other's world entire. No, he assures the anxious son, they would never eat people. Yes, he says, they are the good guys. And by all means, he exhorts his son, do all you can do to carry the fire in your heart. Cormac McCarthy, Pulitzer Prize winner for the book The Road, published in 2006. For film this week, I review a Cuban movie by the title Barrio Cuba. This award-winning film from Havana follows the struggles of three multi-generational families. Sweltering heat, dilapidated buildings, a dysfunctional economy, and a Spartan diet are only the beginning of their deeply human struggles. We're having beans and rice again, says one wife, because that's what the grocery had. Magalis bikes to her job as a nurse and attracts all the wrong sort of men. An aging carpenter who's hopelessly in love with her. A no-good cheater and a rich Italian. But her real challenge is the fight between her dictatorial father and her gay brother. When Maria dies in childbirth, her husband Santos flees, leaving the grandmother to raise the boy and to salvage the son's image of his absent father. In the third story, the engineer Chino and his pharmacist wife Vivian suffer a miscarriage, and with that miscarriage, the expectations of their parents for a grandchild, both of which are aggravated by a sibling who flees with his family from Cuba. The three stories are not connected in the film except for a common theme. People who flee their problems then face the challenge to return for reconciliation. The problems are real, but the resolutions felt contrived. Barrio Cuba in Spanish with English subtitles. <clears throat>
For poetry this week, we continue our series of poems by Wendell Berry, writer and farmer. Wendell Berry was born in 1934. The title of his longer poem this week is called A Timbered Choir. Even while I dreamed, I prayed that what I saw was only fear and no foretelling. For I saw the last known landscape destroyed for the sake of the objective. The soil bludgeoned, the rock blasted. Those who had wanted to go home would never get there now. I visited the offices where, for the sake of the objective, the planners planned at blank desks set in rows. I visited the loud factories where the machines were made that would drive ever forward toward the objective. I saw the forest reduced to stumps and gullies. I saw the poisoned river, the mountain cast into the valley. I came to the city that nobody recognized because it looked like every other city. I saw the passages worn by the unnumbered footfalls of those whose eyes were fixed upon the objective. Their passing had obliterated the graves and the monuments of those who had died in pursuit of the objective and who had long ago forever been forgotten according to the inevitable rule that those who have forgotten forget that they have forgotten. Men, women, and children now pursued the objective as if nobody ever had pursued it before. The races and the sexes now intermingled perfectly in pursuit of the objective. The once enslaved, the once oppressed were now free to sell themselves to the highest bidder and to enter the best-paying prisons in pursuit of the objective, which was the destruction of all enemies, which was the destruction of all obstacles, which was the destruction of all objects, which was to clear the way to victory, which was to clear the way to promotion, to salvation, to progress, to the completed sale, to the signature on the contract, which was to clear the way to self-realization, to self-creation, from which nobody who ever wanted to go home would ever get there now. For every remembered place had been displaced. The signpost had been bent to the ground and covered over Every place had been displaced, every love, unlove, every vow, unsworn, every word, unmeant to make way for the passage of the crowd of the individuated, the autonomous, the self-actuated, the homeless with their many eyes open toward the objective which they did not yet perceive in the far distance having never known where they were going, having never known where they came from. A Timbered Choir by Wendell Berry, poet, 
essayist, farmer, and novelist. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for June the 15th, 2008. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.